Now, we're going to dive into our text in Galatians, and Carla is going to read our sermon text for us this morning. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything, but he is under the guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we are children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Amen. Let's pray. Gracious God, we are grateful for you. We're grateful for your mercy and your grace, for your love for us. God, we're grateful for the gift it is to gather as your people this morning. We're grateful for your holy word. And God, I pray now that you, by your spirit, will illuminate your word for us and use it to encourage us and transform us even now. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Have you ever had the experience in life where you have maybe gotten something or experienced something, maybe a gift, or you went to a movie or a concert or had a meal or vacation, and it was better than you expected, or you got way more than you expected? Last year, Amy and I had the privilege of going away for our 20th anniversary to an all-inclusive resort, and I didn't have much time to do a whole lot of research, uh, but I had a friend who recommended a place for us to go that he had been to before, and so we made our reservations, booked our flights, and looked forward to our time away. And it wasn't just great that we were able to go, because when we got there, we got way more than we expected. It was better than we expected. The food was better than we expected. The resort itself was better than we expected, and it was a great time away. You know, we've been in a sermon series in the book of Galatians called Amazing Grace. Galatians is a letter that the Apostle Paul is writing to a group of churches who are struggling. They're straying away from the truth of the gospel and what it means and what's required of them to be saved from their sin and reconciled to God. They've started to believe that Jesus alone isn't enough. It has to be Jesus plus something else. In their case, obeying the law. But Paul is seeking to show them and remind them throughout this letter that it is Jesus plus nothing. He's highlighted that no one is justified. In other words, no one is made right with God by their works or by the works of the law, but only by faith in Christ alone, who he is and what he's done. And so as we come to our text today, Paul's seeking to tell them, to tell us, look, being justified by grace is amazing, but it's even better than you expected. He's essentially saying, wait, there's more, but not like in a gimmicky infomercial kind of way. No, he's showing them another implication of the gospel that is life-changing, not only for eternity, but for here and now if we take hold of it. What he shows us is that God's son came to us not only so we can be justified, but also so we can be adopted into the family of God. Now, maybe you've never heard about spiritual adoption before. 
Maybe you're very familiar with the concept of spiritual adoption, but my guess is we're all somewhere kind of in between that place. And because of that, I think that it's one of the most overlooked and underestimated aspects of the gospel. But in God's providence, we're here in this text today, and I'm so grateful for the opportunity to preach it because God has used the truth of spiritual adoption in my own life to help me in so many different ways. And so my hope for you today is that no matter where you're at on your spiritual journey or your understanding of spiritual adoption, that all of us would embrace this glorious truth and see it radically impact not only our relationship with God, but also our relationships with one another. So let's dive into Galatians 4, and may God bless the preaching of his word. As we come to our text today, what we see Paul doing is essentially elaborating on what he has just said. And as he does this, he introduces this idea of the glorious grace of adoption that comes not by way of the law, but by faith in Jesus. But first, we see that he highlights our reality apart from Christ. And what we learn is, is that under the law, we are enslaved. Look at verses one and two in chapter four. It says, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until that, the day set by his father. Paul has just made reference to being an heir at the end of chapter three. An heir is someone who receives an inheritance from someone else. But here he points out that while the heir is a child, he's no different than a slave. Now, that's kind of odd language to use. You might be thinking, what in the world is he talking about here? Well, first, we have to understand that the slavery that Paul is referencing here is not the same as American chattel slavery. We also have to see that even though Paul uses this analogy, he's not advocating for any form of slavery. However, it was a part of the culture. In a Roman household, it wouldn't be uncommon to have the son and a slave, maybe the same age, playing together, hanging out. And if you approach that household, you may not know which one is the son or which one is the slave. He's using this as an example to show that a child, like a slave, doesn't have autonomy. He doesn't have autonomy, even though he's the owner of everything. He is the heir, and one day he will inherit all of this in the future. But in this moment, at this point in his life, verse 2 tells us he's under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In other words, someone else is calling the shots in his life until the day of emancipation, the day of becoming an adult. Now, parenting played out differently in the first century than it does now, right? Like, this isn't our experience. We don't walk into Fairfax and say, is that the son or is that the slave? But I think we can understand at some level, even though we give kids way more autonomy now, at least the concept of what's going on here, we still typically don't let our kids do whatever they want to do. They can't stay up however late they want to, eat whatever they want to, watch whatever they want to. We don't give them a limitless credit card or uninhibited access to our bank accounts, right? There's rules and parameters that we put on their lives, and it's for their good. In verse 24 of chapter 3, Paul said that the law functioned as a guardian until Christ came. It gave these parameters, these guidance of what it looks like to be in relationship with God and, and how our lives are supposed to orient around him. And so Paul's giving this analogy to further explain the concept of the law. But then we learn in verse 3, this isn't just an analogy. Paul says, this is you. 
Verse three, he says, in the same way, we also, he's including everyone here, Jew and Gentile. He says, when we were children, we're enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. What he's saying is, is when you and I are born into this world, we're all under the requirements of God's holy law. But we're captive to the sin that prohibits us from completely obeying it. But see, whether we are religious or irreligious, All of us can seek to be right or be good or okay based off what we do or we don't do. Following rules and checking boxes. That's what he means by the elementary principles of the world. And his point is, is that any system of belief, any worldview that does this, that says this is how you can be good or right, whether it's trying to obey God's law or some law that you've made up on your own, ultimately will end in enslavement, not life. Because the reality is all of us are unable to live up to that standard. None of us can measure up. Even if it's a law we've created in of ourselves, we're likely to judge others based off of our standards but we can't even hold them up in our own life. We can never achieve perfect obedience. See, before God, who is holy and perfect and righteous, our life is not a scale where as long as we do more good than bad, defined either by God or by ourselves, we'll be fine. The scripture is clear. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Our life before him is not on a sliding scale of success or failure. failure. It's pass or fail, and we fail. All of us are born in this world as rebels, seeking to assert our own independence, to go our own way. And the law, in whatever form it takes, cannot remedy that problem. Verse three essentially is your pre-Christian condition. Before you would place your faith in Christ, your natural spiritual state isn't that you are a son or daughter of God, but that you are a slave, orphaned by your sin, unable to fix your predicament or release yourself from your captivity. So why is Paul saying all this? Because the Galatians are straying away from the truth of the gospel that they've believed. The gospel that sets them free from their captivity and they're returning to the elementary principles of the world. They've begun to believe that they can, that they must perform in order to be accepted. They must follow all aspects of the law in order to be justified. Paul's point is, is that going back to the law, looking for life in it would be like a PhD repeating the first grade. This isn't progressing in spiritual life and maturity, it's regressing. Now, before we would look at this and be like foolish Galatians and criticize them, we have to see that all of us can do this in our own life in some way. For some, you might believe Jesus is necessary for your salvation, but in the midst of your life, in the midst of your struggles, maybe you find yourself drawn to doing a lot of outward spiritual things in an effort to please God or earn his love. Thinking if I serve more, if I give more, if I show up on Sundays, that's how God's going to give me his love. All of those things are good things, but none of those are the basis of your acceptance by God. Or maybe when you sin in an effort to make things right, instead of repenting and continuing to trust in the finished work of Jesus, you seek to do penance 
or dis, di, uh, discipline yourself in some way, like depriving yourself of something as a form of self-imposed punishment for messing up again, all the while forgetting that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And it's the kindness of the Lord that leads you to repentance. I say all of those things because I've done all of those things. Whether it's these examples or something else, they are similar to what's going on with the Galatians. They're going back to the elementary principles of the world, seeking to make yourself right or be good so that God will love you or accept you. That's what Paul wants to free the Galatians from, wants to free you from. And that's why we need a text like this in our life and in our community. See, what Paul has just said might be the Galatians' present reality. It might be our reality at different points in our life. But he wants to remind them and us of what is true of us because of Jesus. See, under the law, we are enslaved. But through Jesus, we are redeemed. Look at verse 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, and the fullness of time doesn't mean that, uh, uh, well, let me, uh, before I get to that, this, the first word that sticks out here is the word, but. It's a small word, but it's an important one in scripture. Maybe one of the best words in all of the Bible because it establishes contrast, right? The situation, the reality of being enslaved to the law, to the elementary principles of the world, that's really bad, but that's not the end of the story, but there's good news, there's better news. And what is that better news? In the fullness of time, God sent forth his son. Now, in the fullness of time doesn't mean that all of our circumstances of the physical world or the political world were set up in a particular way that made this the ideal time. It means that in God's providence and sovereignty, this was the exact moment in time that he saw fit to carry out his rescue plan the one he had established before the foundation of the world. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law. He's talking about Jesus. And Jesus didn't become the son of God. He already and eternally was the son of God. But now he's born into this world in complete humility and the full vulnerability that human birth is. Jesus is both fully God and fully man. That's something maybe it's difficult for us to wrap our minds around and understand completely, but it's true. It's what we celebrate during Advent, during Christmas. Jesus, the very Son of God, came to us as one of us. But he didn't just enter into this world in the same way that we enter the world. He entered into the mess of it, too. That's what Paul's getting at when he says, born under the law. Jesus didn't come and sidestep the realities and hardships of life hanging out in an ivory tower or a golden palace. He, he didn't come as someone exempt from God's standards as if they don't apply to him. Just like you and me, he was called to live his life quorum Deo before God and submit his life to God, walking in obedience in all things. Jesus didn't just come to hang out and experience life on earth like he was conducting market research for the Trinity. Like, what is it like to be a human? No, Paul says God sent him, born of woman, born under the law, verse five, to do what? To redeem those who were under the law. This language brings us back to our reality. You and I are enslaved and captive to the law because we can't live up to its righteous requirements because of our sin. 
As I mentioned a few weeks ago, the purpose of the law was to show us our rebellion, show us our inability. It was to show us of our need for a savior, for a rescuer, for a redeemer, someone outside of ourselves who can release us from the curse of the law and the consequence of sin. And that's what Jesus came to do. He came to redeem. He came to purchase our release, to pay the penalty for our rebellion. But he didn't do this by getting out a cosmic checkbook or swiping a divine discover card. No, in the fullness of time, Jesus was born into this world. He grew up in relative obscurity and all along the way, he lived a perfect life of obedience to every and all aspects of God's law. But that wasn't the end of it. He then willingly and joyfully paid the full penalty for those who haven't obeyed it by being nailed to a cross. And in the moment of his excruciating death, he bore the full weight of the righteous wrath of God for sinners and lawbreakers like you and like me. And it's when you and I place our faith in him, our hope and our trust in him and what he's done, believing that Jesus alone is the only way the only way for our sin problem to be dealt with, the only way for us to be reconciled to God that we are set free from our spiritual captivity. It's then that we are justified, that we're made right before God, which is what Paul's been reminding of the Galatians of all along. It's amazing news of amazing grace. But here's where Paul doesn't want us to miss, and I don't want us to miss, that there's more to the gospel than our justification. There's more to it than our freedom from sin. Through Jesus, we are redeemed, and through Jesus, we are adopted. Notice what Paul says here. He said, Jesus was sent to redeem those under the law to do what? So that we might receive adoption as sons. I love this. Because of what Jesus accomplished on the cross, you and I can experience not only forgiveness, but the glorious grace of adoption. And it's an amazing reality. In J.I. Packer's amazing book, Knowing God, which if you've never read it before, I would highly recommend it to you. It's a phenomenal book. And he writes a chapter in there on our spiritual adoption that is gold. If you don't even read the whole book, at least read that chapter. In it, he says this, adoption is the highest privilege that the gospel offers, higher even than justification. And I completely agree. Now, maybe at first that sounds wrong, maybe even a little bit scandalous. I mean, how can he say that adoption is a higher privilege than justification? Well, let's think about it for a minute. Our spiritual state is, is that we are, before we trust in Christ, we are enemies of God. We're in the kingdom of darkness. But by grace, through what Christ has accomplished, Jesus, what Jesus accomplished for us, God transfers us into his kingdom. Right, So picture a kingdom. It's got walls around it, right? It would be appropriate for us for all eternity to worship God, to give thanks to God for him just setting us right before him, making us right before him because of what Christ has done. If he lets us into the edge of his kingdom, giving us grace, forgiving us of all of our sin, he deserves all of our worship and all of our praise for all eternity. And God does that. He brings us into his kingdom, but doesn't stop there. He also invites us to his table. He calls us his child. We come into the most intimate kind of relationship you can have, and he brings us into relationship with him. 
We're orphaned because of our sin. We have no hope and no home. And through Christ, we're not just forgiven of our sin, we're brought into God's family. See, it isn't that justification is not important or secondary at all. No, justification, being made right with God is primary, but it's only the beginning. It's a fundamental blessing, but it isn't the entirety of the blessing of the gospel. Packer goes on to say, to be right with God the judge is a great thing, but to be loved and cared for by God the Father is greater. It's better than we expected. It's far more than any of us deserve. And it's possible not because of what we do, but because of what Jesus alone accomplished for us. Now, you may be wondering about why he only says adoption as sons. Is Paul being sexist here? Like, does he not care about girls? No, he isn't being sexist. He isn't overlooking girls. This is very intentional. In ancient times, who received the the main portion of inheritance from their father? It was firstborn sons. So what Paul is saying here is that when we are adopted into God's family, men and women, sons and daughters, it's as if we are all firstborn sons, recipients of all its attendant benefits. But this leads me to ask a question that I've wrestled with over the years. I mean, theologically, I could understand the doctrine of spiritual adoption. I'm not just forgiven. I'm also a child of God. But does it really matter for everyday living? I mean, like, we're going to walk out of here today, and we're going to go back into our week on tomorrow morning as you go to your job or your vocation, whatever that is. Does this matter for your life on Thursday evening when you're Sitting at home, bored, does this matter for your life? When you're going throughout the week or relationships, why does this matter for your life? Does it matter for your life? Yes, it absolutely does. And I can say that from personal experience, but don't take my word for it. God's word tells us this. That's what Paul gets into next. See, the first thing we see is that our spiritual adoption fundamentally changes how we relate to God. Look at verse six. It says, and because you are sons... God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Brothers and sisters, don't let it be lost on you that you can come to God as Father. You can come to him as Father. He is holy and he is perfect. He is the judge of all humanity. He is transcendent. He is high and lifted up. All those things are true about God, but sometimes I think we can leave it at that that we stop there when we think about God or relate to him. Some of us view God only in this way. Yet what we learn from this text is that we can come to him like a child comes to a father for the things the child comes to his or her father for. Things like comfort, provision, wisdom, instruction, and care. You and I can come to God as father and we can cry out to him. Abba is the Aramaic word for father, and it seems to be the word that Jesus used to refer to God. It denotes familiarity, relational intimacy. It has the idea of being fully known and fully loved. See, because of what Jesus accomplished on the cross, you can now experience this kind of relationship with God. Listen to me, you can come to him with anything. You can come to him with everything. You can process all of your emotions and all of your feelings, all of your questions and all of your doubts. You know, sometimes kids can test their parents. 
maybe even question if they're really loved by their parents. We can do the same thing with God. We can act out. We can rebel. We can test whether he really does genuinely care for us and will always love us. But you know what? Even when we do that, God doesn't get frustrated. He invites us to himself again. He invites us to experience his grace, his unfailing love again and again and again. I have four kids, and I really want my kids to come to me with anything, even their mistakes. But Joe and I am not perfect. I'm not always patient or gentle or gracious. I'm certainly not omnicompetent. No dad is, but God is. God is all of those things, perfectly patient, perfectly gentle, perfectly gracious. And when I remember that on both good days and bad days, it actually draws me to him to find my rest in him, to calm and quiet my soul before him. And it's the spirit, Paul says, who helps me understand this and helps me to believe it. This has been so helpful for me over the years whether it's been times when I've wrestled with unbelief or I'm struggling with sin, when I really began to realize this to be true, when I really began to believe this and then remember that God is my father and that I'm his son, it's helped me not to hide, not to run from him, but run to him in raw honesty and repentance, even when my faith is feeble. I mean, it happened just this last week or so I was wrestling with some different thoughts and feelings and I was driving around one day listening to music and a song came on that I've heard a ton of times before whose lyrics are raw and real and on this particular day, it really hit me. Tears began to roll down my face. But you know what? God in that moment gave me grace and the spirit in that moment helped me to do what this text says, to cry out, Abba, Father. You know why I could do that? Because he's my father. And he loves me so much that he sent his son to die for me so that I could be his son now and forever. But listen, this isn't just for me. It's for you too. If you've placed your faith in Jesus, I want you to experience this reality also, maybe for some of you for the first time in your life. If you find yourself struggling with sin or struggling with shame and your first inclination is to run and hide from God, to kind of try and clean yourself up first or to feel like God must be so disappointed in me, he might reject me or push me away. No, come to him, cry out to him. Run to him. His arms are open wide for you to come and find rest and hope and forgiveness and grace in him. And if you've never trusted in Christ before, if you've never thought of God as a person that you can relate to and interact with and share all of your life with, I wanna call you to him today. Place your hope in Jesus. Experience the fatherhood of God. Now, I know that for some of you, the idea of God being the father is, or being a father is difficult because you've had or have a difficult or grievous relationship with your earthly father. Some of you experienced, have experienced abuse or neglect or functional abandonment, a lack of love, a lack of presence. But here's what I want you to see in this. God isn't like your earthly father. He is good and he does good. He is perfect in every way. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. He will discipline you because he disciplines those he loves. 
but it will never be harsh or over the top, but always for your good and his glory. Listen, the gospel enables us to experience the only one who is a perfect father. And that's true even for those of us who've had great dads. So no matter what your experience with your earthly father has been, come to your heavenly father and experience his loving kindness, experience his lavish grace. Come to him to see fatherhood redeemed. Come to him with anything and everything, and I really mean that, with your sin, with your sadness, with your apathy, with your anger, with your fear. Come to him, cry out to him, come to him to be fully known and fully loved. The second thing we see as a result of our spiritual adoption and the practical reality of our life is it fundamentally changes how we view ourselves. Verse seven says, so you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. Paul says, we are no longer slaves. This is a definitive statement of your identity. Something you once were is no longer true of you. Because of Jesus' finished work on the cross, the shackles of your captivity and sin have been broken, and now you are a beloved child of God who is free. Sin no longer has dominion over you. But man, sometimes I sure feel like a slave, not a son. Whether it be a slave to sin or to wrong thoughts or beliefs about God or myself, and when I find myself going back into that jail cell, putting back on those shackles, what's happening in that moment is I'm not remembering, I'm not believing that I have a new identity as a son. So let me ask you, in your life right now, are you acting, living, believing more like a slave or more like a son? And if it's the former, don't feel shame over that. It's not me giving you a slap on the wrist or telling you to stop it. And what do we do when we experience that? We come back to a text like Galatians 4. We remember who we are and whose we are. And if you've placed your hope in Jesus, look at me, listen to me, hear this. Maybe for the first time or the thousandth time in your life, you are no longer a slave. You are no longer a slave. You are a child of God. You are a son or daughter of God. And because of that, you are an heir, he says. Being an heir through God is a matter of hope and future glory and grace. You and I live in a jacked up world. Things are difficult and hard all around us. We experience that, but we have an inheritance. We have an inheritance that we will be with God forever. So when things are challenging in this life, when the world around you seems to be crumbling or crushing, when sadness overwhelms you, when good things are taken away from you, or for the moment denied to you, remember you are an heir and that everything that is Christ's is yours. And one day Jesus, our brother, will come again and he will wipe away every tear and remove every sadness and he will make all things new. One last thing I want to point out that isn't explicit in this text but came up in our text last week is that our spiritual adoption not only fundamentally changes how we relate to God, not only fundamentally changes how we view ourselves, but it fundamentally changes how we relate to one another. Flip back in your Bible to verses 27 and 28 in chapter 3. Charles preached on this last week. He says, for as many 
of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. See, what all this communicates is that because God is our father and we are his children, that makes us brothers and sisters to one another. Now listen, we love actual adoption and foster care at this church. And it's because of texts like this. When we understand our spiritual adoption, we then seek to take a step to actually adopt or foster or care for orphans around the world or support those who do, no matter where those children are from, no matter who they are. We love that about our church. We see that. So many of you have been participants in that and are in the midst of it right now, and we love you. We want to care for you and encourage you in that. But like actual adoption, siblings oftentimes don't look the same. They have different stories, different backgrounds, different challenges, but they're brought together into the same home, the same family because of love. We also, as God's children, have different stories and different backgrounds and different experiences, but as this text says, we are all one in Christ, a part of the same family because of God's love for us. And we live in a lonely city, a lonely country, a lonely time. But what we have in and through our spiritual adoption is a new family. Not one that comes with cold demands and overwhelming obligations, and certainly not one that's perfect. But we have a community where we can seek to be fully known and fully loved and seek to fully know and fully love others. That's why church membership is so important. We commit to one another, saying we're all in with each other as brothers and sisters, helping each other remember who we are and whose we are, that because of Christ, we belong to God and that will never change. And we, as a family, encourage one another to keep moving forward as we live life along the way. All of this that Paul is talking about here is absolutely glorious. It's indeed way better than we expected and far greater than we deserve. And Paul's point to the Galatians, Paul's point to us is you can never have any of this, achieve any of this, experience any of this by doing works by trying to obey and keep the law. Now, the glorious grace of adoption comes through Jesus and Jesus alone. So don't set him aside. Put him at the center of your life. To close, I want to uh, give one last quote from Packer to encourage you as you head into this week. It begins with some questions to ask yourself. He starts off by saying this, do I, as a Christian, understand myself? Do I know my own real identity, my own real destiny? And here's what it is. I am a child of God. God is my father. Heaven is my home. Every day is one day nearer. My savior is my brother. Every Christian is my brother or sister too. Then he goes on to say this, and this is my encouragement to you. He says, say it over and over to yourself first thing in the morning, last thing at night, as you wait for the bus, anytime your mind is free, and ask that you may be enabled to live as one who knows it is all utterly and completely true. This is the Christian's secret of a Christian life and of a God-honoring life. And these are the aspects of the situation that really matter. May this secret become fully yours and fully mine. And to that I say, amen. God, make it so. 
You know, I can't think of a better first response to these amazing truths than coming to the table together, taking the Lord's Supper together. Jesus gave us this meal to remind us and refresh us in the truth of who he is and what he's done for us. Every time we eat the bread, a picture of his body given for us, it reminds us that we are, have been set free from our slavery. And every time we drink the cup, a picture of Jesus' blood shed for us, it reminds us that we are adopted sons, heirs through God. And when we do this, it's an act of faith. We testify to the truth that God is our good father. And we do it in the context of our brothers and sisters. And so just a moment after I pray, I'm gonna invite you to come to one of the tables. There's a few down front here, the back corners, and then along the railings in the balcony. And as you come forward, look at the person who's serving you. Listen to what they say to you. That's your brother, that's your sister reminding you of what Jesus has done for you. But as you come, I wanna invite you in this moment to truly commune with the Father. Come to him in repentance and faith. Come to him with all that's on your mind and heart right now, from your work to your home to your life. Come to him with your joys and your sorrows, your weariness and your burdens. Come to him and receive his mercy and grace for help in time of need. He is your good father. For those of you that are not yet followers of Jesus, we're so grateful that God's brought you to be here this morning. I want you, we want you to experience his grace, to know him as father. And so instead of coming and eating and partaking of this meal, just hang out in your seat and talk to God. Confess your need for him for Jesus to be your Lord and Savior. Let's pray. Father, God, we're so grateful to be able to call you Father. Not because we've figured it out, not because of anything that we've done, but because of Jesus, who he is and what he's done. God, we thank you that we can come to you in this way as your children. And so Father, we pray that you would help us to believe these truths about you and to believe these truths about ourselves, that we are your children, never to be forsaken. God, we pray that you'd help us to remember these truths all the days of our lives. Help us to experience your steadfast love for us even now, no matter what's going on in our lives, no matter where we've been struggling, God, help us to cry out to you and to know and to believe that you hear us, that you love us. We pray all this in Jesus' name, amen. Come forward whenever you're ready.